Thank you for joining this special edition of Harper Audio Presents, where we are excerpting the new novel from Ryan Gaddis, who has been compared to Richard Price, George Pelicanos, and Dennis Lehane. The novel, All Involved, publishing from Echo Press on April 7, 2015, takes place over six days in 1992 with the LA riots as backdrop. Today's excerpt is from day three, Friday. The novel contains profane language and some violence and is not intended for children. If you have children listening, you'll want to turn the podcast off now. We'll serialize a children's book later in the year and this is not for them. Ryan, please tell us who Gloria and Anthony are and how they are related to the murder victim Ernesto Vera. I think for me, Gloria is one of the absolute heroes in this book. She's a registered nurse. Uh, she didn't get pulled down uh, by growing up in Linwood, I, almost, but not quite. You know, she, growing up, she had terrible relationships with terrible men. Uh, she got out of those with a wealth of experience, but she's not all the way out of the neighborhood of Linwood. She still lives there with her sister. Her folks still live there, her brother and cousin too. She was the first person to get to Ernesto after he'd been attacked. You know, she was by his side when he died. It haunts her even at her work, Harbor UCLA in uh, Carson, where she always keeps an eye out for a certain fireman, which brings me to Anthony. Um, he's a Croatian-American fireman from San Pedro. He's an engineer, which means he drives the truck with the water in it. Uh, and this is certainly one of the most important jobs in the LA Fire Department or any fire department for that matter, because you're just not putting out any fires without engineers driving those trucks. Uh, he's responsible, he's honorable, and he's about to go to work in Los Angeles on one of the worst nights of his life. This section tackles the very, very beginning of, of day three, the early morning. Uh, because of the way the riots have unfolded, the fire departments, both county and city, have developed a siege mentality. Firemen have been attacked, one has been shot, trucks have been shot at, they've had rocks thrown at them, and this section takes us into a neighborhood at the precise moment, at least for Anthony, when he knows something is wrong, but it's not his call to turn around. He's not in charge. He just has to follow orders. Here is Marisol Ramirez and Jim Cooper reading from Day 3 from All Involved. 1. I haven't slept since the riot began. I can't get Ernesto Vera's body out of my head. It's like it's burned in me, permanently on my brain. His name, the look on his face, I can't shake them, and I've seen more death than most people ever should. Part of that I asked for. I know, it's my job. But part of it, it's the neighborhood, too. Ernesto's, though, it was different. It was personal. He didn't even recognize me when I was there trying to help him. But even beat up as he was, I recognized him. I knew we went to Linwood High together. That we even hung out a little freshman year. And he was kind. We kissed some in the band room, but it never became anything. He never knew it because I never told him, but he was the first boy I ever did that with. Years later, I saw him sometimes at the Tacos al Unico truck or the stand on Atlantic and Rosecrans, and he'd always give my abuela one more taco than we ordered, extra onion because that's how my grandma liked it, and he always remembered. That was Ernesto, I guess. He remembered the small things. A while later, I heard from my cousin Termite 
that Ernesto had to pay for those extra tacos out of his wages. He never said anything to us about that. He never complained. I guess that was Ernesto, too. Then I come home one night and Ernesto's lying flat in my alley, and all this nursing school I had can't save him. He gives up right under my fingers, and then he stays there all night, into the next day. He stays there blocking the way I normally go to work, and insects and birds were getting too interested in him, so I call 911 five times and only got through once, but then got put on hold and they never picked back up. So then I called my aunt's boyfriend that works at the county coroner's, and he said he was sympathetic and all, but no way was he coming down. Not with how dangerous things were. And besides, he said, he had zero resources. His guys were spread out all over the city, already hours behind on pickups, even in safe areas. That set me off. I was screaming before I knew it. I asked him how he thought it made me feel having to live in the middle of it, having to have the dead body of the first boy I ever kissed outside my garage for more than a day. Did he know that I've had the windows closed in my house this whole time, but now I'm starting to smell it? And did he have any idea how awful that was when you can't get away? After that, I didn't wait for him to say anything. I hung up and called a private ambulance company I know of through the hospital, and I begged them to come, but it wasn't until I told them I'd pay the drivers extra that they started listening. I had to lie, too. I told them I was his sister and please, we just needed him treated right. The guy on the phone I didn't know, but he said he knew of a place to take the body. And then he started building a lie of his own, saying how he'd have to tell the cops there was no crime scene, that it was a body dump, that they were just out doing a run and stumbled across it, and the family begged us, and, ah, uh, I don't know. I remember him saying, I'll think of something. Just make it cash. I watched two guys take Ernesto up and put him in the back for $228. That's 11 twenties, a five, and three ones. All the banks have been closed since the riot started, so I could only give what I had in the house, every last little thing I'd saved for rainy days. I was going to buy a new TV with that money but now that seems stupid. I don't even want to look at everything going on in the city anymore. I don't want to see the news. I just want quiet. The thing that sticks with me about how they took him is that they didn't remove his sister's flannel from his face, the black and white one I watched her put on him specially. They just put a white sheet over everything, from head to toe. They tried not to disturb anything about the body on the chance it had evidence on it, they said. After that, I watched them close the doors up, and I watched Ernesto get driven away. Somebody had to. I've been nursing long enough to know that not everybody can be helped. Sometimes, you just have to be there. Be a witness, so they don't pass on alone. I hope I was that for him, but I don't know. I still feel I failed. I stood in the alley for a long time after he was gone. When I finally left for work, I didn't come home. So I'm still at the hospital. Harbor UCLA, 
I can't bring myself to go home, so I just stay on and think about Ernesto and worry about my brother. He's out there with everybody else, banging and looting. I just know it. Him and what he calls his party crew. I didn't even know what that was, so I asked him to explain it to me, and he didn't even do that. He just told me a story about how this one time, a bunch of them ditched school and had a ditching party. It was the kind of thing where everyone was taking drugs and having sex in the backyard during the day. He wouldn't shut up about how great it was. Gangster Woodstock, that's what he called it. I wish he was kidding. Aurelio is a lot of things, but not a liar. Stacy must see me just standing there in the hallway, so she comes over from the nursing station. You okay, lady? Long day, I say automatically. That usually means don't ask, or it's not over yet. For me and the other nurses, it's like a code. We had curfew tonight all over the city. It started at dusk, the news said, but the only thing it did for us in the hospital was slow the flow from nonstop to an occasional flash flood, because when people come in, they come in waves. We're in a lull now, but it'll pick up soon. Long day, Stacy says back, smiles, and walks away. But as she's going, she kind of winks at me and points behind her clipboard at a man coming up the hall. I follow her finger to the man known as Mr. So-and-so, and that's when my heart decides to palpitate like it was jumping rope and all of a sudden got tangled up in it. That's not his real name, by the way. Only me and the other nurses call him that. At first, it was because Filipina Maria, there's two Marias, Abulog and Saragossa. Well, Maria Abulog saw him first 16 months ago and liked what she saw, even though she's married and has three kids. But I guess she felt it was important to tell all the single nurses about him, because that's how nurses are. They either want to set you up or knock you down. In my experience, there's not really much in between. Anyways, when Filipina Maria looked at Mr. So-and-so's name tag, she saw a last name that started with S that she couldn't even hope to pronounce, so she just called him Mr. So-and-so, and then we all did. Pretty soon, everybody got real good at being on the lookout for the tall firefighter, over six foot, with a black mustache and a chin with a dent in it, brown eyes and good-looking eyebrows like he gets them plucked or something, but I know he doesn't. Lots of girls have made plays for him, but he doesn't seem interested. At least, he wasn't into Stacy, and she's all blonde and an ex-volleyball player, so I don't know what his type is. All the older nurses on the ward say he likes me, but I don't believe them. Maybe I'm too short for him. Maybe I'm too brown. Here's what I know about Mr. So-and-so. His first name is Anthony. He's 36 years old, but I don't know when his birthday is and that's a shame because it would be helpful for horoscopes. He has a scar on his left cheek that looks like a lowercase v, but I don't know how he got it. Under that scar is a dimple when he smiles. There isn't one on the right side. He lives in St. Pedro, and he grew up there. His family is Croatian, and I know because Teresa over in Billing is from Pedro too, and she knows his family because there's only one public high school and one tiny Catholic high school, 
so everybody knows everybody. This is good, too, because Teresa also knows his family's Catholic, which is great news for my mother, if, you know, she ever met him or anything. I should probably say I'm not obsessed at all. I just like him a little. Okay, maybe a lot. And it's weird, too, because normally I'm not so good at paying close attention to anything but my job. But with him, I can't help it. Like when he's done talking to me, right before he has to go. He always bows his head a little, like he's acknowledging me. Like our talks mean something to him, too. And his hands, they're not like normal size. They're so big, the kind that could swoop you up. The kind that hold women tight on the covers of the silly romance books Thea Luce reads. And best of all, his left hand has got no ring on it. I asked Teresa, and she said he's never been married, just engaged once, but it didn't work out. I try not to stare when he sees me and walks towards me. When I was just a girl, I took ballet because my mother said I needed culture, but now the only thing I remember about it is how the pirouetting made me feel all dizzy and twisted up inside after. That's how I feel when Mr. So-and-so gets close. I've seen him in a few times, always with other firemen. He's the driver. I guess they call him an engineer, though, like on a train. He gets them to the fires, and if anybody's hurt, he drives them here. His look tells me that's why he's here, and my heart sinks. Good morning, Nurse Gloria. He says it all quiet. He does that, calls me Nurse and my first name. I can't think why or how it started. I like it, though. It's become our thing, the way we greet each other. So I always respond with, Good morning, Fireman Anthony. But he doesn't smile at me today, and I don't get to see his dimple, not like normal. His head is down. I know it's because of everything going on, but even when things are bad, and when you work where we work and meet how we meet, there's always something bad. He has a smile for me, even a little one, or a dark joke about something he saw or something he heard. He usually tries to make me smile, but not today. Today, he puts his hands in his pockets. So that's when I know I have to be the one to start the conversation. So I say, from what's coming in, it doesn't look good out there. What's going on? I touch his triceps softly and drop my hand quick. I want him to know I care, but at the same time, I don't want him to know I care. My heart's kind of fluttery, like it remembers tripping over the jump rope, and it's a little wary. I look him over to make sure he isn't hurt or anything, not even a little bit. Oh. Uh is what he says. Nothing else. I know not to push it. You hear things in the hospital. You see things. We treated 11 firemen last night. That I know of. And trust me, I checked every single name when they came in. One of them had been shot, but he made it through surgery and could pull through. There might have been more. It seems like firemen got it the worst that first day. Everything was so disorganized, and there were no cops to protect them, so they got shot at. It seems better now, but still not great. I even heard there were sniper attacks on fire stations 9, 16, and 41. As soon as the engines left the stations, people started shooting. 
So if I'm acting weird at all, or jumpy, just forgive me because I didn't know if Mr. So-and-so would be safe, or if I'd see him again. And women sometimes do strange things when they don't know if they'll see somebody that might end up being really special to them again. That's what my abuela said, anyways. And she was an expert on all kinds of things, especially on being a woman. You be sure to take care of him, Mr. So-and-so finally says. I don't know who he's talking about exactly, but I know we got one more firefighter to take care of now. I'll ask Stacy about it later, after he's gone. Mr. So-and-so bows his head a little right then. And before he looks back down the hall the way he came, because he always does that right after bowing his head, I say, you have to go. He gives me a look like he's not sure how I know that. But I just give him a little smile, hoping he'll give me one in return. He doesn't. Be safe out there, I say. He nods and goes. He doesn't look back at me. I try not to take it personal, but it burns a little in my chest. When he's a few steps away, I see dried blood on the back of his neck, and immediately I want to reach out and hold him, inspect him, make sure he's okay and it's not his blood. But I know I can't. That'd just be weird of me. So I let out a frustrated and flustered and worried sigh and start walking. Engineer Anthony Smiljanic, LAFD, May 1, 1992, 2.41 a.m. 1. I have a bad feeling as we enter the cul-de-sac and see our destination lit up like a Roman candle at the end of it. This fire turns adjacent bungalows orange with its light. Right then, I think if ever a place were suited for an ambush, this'd be it. My head's on a swivel as we roll up the street to the blaze. It has been ever since I came on shift, and I don't like what I'm seeing either. Around here, looky-loos dot lawns in twos and threes, young black ones with hoods up and dumbass rags on their heads. Suzuki and Gutierrez are behind me in the jump seats. My captain is sitting next to me, Captain Wiltz. He's black too, but that doesn't mean he likes the look of this crowd either. I tell him I don't like what I'm seeing, and he radios the strike team leader that there are just too many people lurking trying to look like they're not paying attention to us as we go by. Yelling I've gotten used to. Being pelted by rocks, too, but not this kind of quiet. There's about 30 people looking at us like we're dinner on wheels, but the STL says to trust our escort, and Cap nods, so I take us in. I follow orders. That's my job. I drive the rig and pump but I don't have to like them. I just have to keep the hoses charged. California Highway Patrol has two cars on with us, both from Ventura County, down here on mutual aid. Good guys. Not used to what we do, but good guys. They weren't happy hearing we take civilian gunfire even during the best of times, that our rigs get bullet holes and broken windows something regular. Now, in a run-of-the-mill emergency situation, we send a fireman to the hydrant, he opens it, and we squirt. But in the 30 or so hours since this riot kicked off, 
We've been learning this all over the Southland. You send one to the hydrant, he gets hassled, so you send two to the hydrant, and they get hassled too. So it's gotten to the point where you don't even bother opening a hydrant without two escort cars, each one blocking both ends of the block. It's good then, but everything's better when CHP has their guns out. But this is a cul-de-sac in a neighborhood of run-down bungalows built too close together. It's an old block, something out of the 50s that was probably built to house aircraft plant workers, like those down at Lockheed, the ones who came after World War II. Now it's all falling to pieces, peeling paint, fallen down carports, and cars on cinder blocks. It's north of my district, which is 57S, so I don't know if this is blood or crip territory, but it's something. People are paying too much attention for it not to be. And worse, they're moving toward the fire, and us, like slow moths. None of that is my issue right now, though. Right now, my issue is the cul-de-sac. If I wanted to lure firemen into a difficult situation to get out of, I'd do my arson here. Operationally, the only thing to do with cul-de-sacs is to lock off the opening. Only problem in this case is that's also our lone out. It's my job to know our outs, to park the rig head out so we can pull up and leave with no wasted effort. No three-point turns. In and out, clean. Here, we can't do that, and it makes me nervous when our only out is back the way we came. But the STL said, knock these fires down, so I hook up and lay two lines before setting the pressure relief valve. I have the supply two and a half and an inch and a half down. I'm out of three and a half because we had to cut and run due to a potential mob situation off Slauson a couple hours ago. Once we're going here, though, it goes fast and fine. We have five engines, so we knock it down fast. When it's still smoking, we start pulling back. In a standard situation, we stay on it until there's nothing but ash, because if there's a rekindle, it's your ass and the asses of everyone on your company. That's not the case with martial law. Here it's just pulling lines out, squirting, knocking a fire down, picking up, and heading out, because there's always five or ten more to put out. Once you get into a rhythm, it's kind of fun. For one thing, there's no EMS calls for us tonight, and there haven't been since it started. That's almost like a reward. There's no search and rescue going on tonight, only hosing. That's why all the trucks are back at the stations, and the knuckle-dragging, holier-than-thou AOs actually have to do some real work for once. I keep eyes on the crowd when the STL orders us to pull out. They've mashed into one mass near the mouth of the cul-de-sac, and that's not good. Quick as I can, I check my water tanks full from the hydrant before disconnecting the supply line and grabbing Gutierrez. We both load the inch and a half back in the transverse bed. Normally, we'd load it up nice and tight and pretty, but there's no time to be in inspection mode. Right now, it's all about getting the job done and then doing another two blocks over or three or whatever. Speed is the priority, not orderliness. It goes against everything we've been taught, and it's beautiful. It's freedom, is what it is. 
I'd feel better about it if the crowd was further back, though. Every time I turn my head, it seems like they're bigger somehow. Closer. I nod to Gutierrez, and he knows to hurry the hell up. He sees them, too. We quick-load the two and a half and lift it up between us. We rested on the tailboard for a moment, before the final heft into the hose bed, as CHP gets back in their cars and opens our exit up so all the engines can come out. But that's when I know something's wrong. The second CHP shuts their doors, a barrage of debris comes our way, and right behind it, bodies fly straight at us through the dark. Who knows why? Some race shit? Some authority shit? Excuse me if I never stop to consider the motive of fucking gangbangers because I'm too busy dropping hose and ducking a chucked rock the size of a softball. The thing dents the back of my rig before hitting asphalt. By the time I pull my head up, somebody's on top of Gutierrez, and one of his legs is trapped under the hose, and he's struggling to get out of it. I lunge forward to tackle the cocksucker, but I'm not fast enough. This big black son of a bitch built like an offensive lineman slams half a jagged cinder block down on Gutierrez's face. Point first. I see the look on this kid's face then. The seriousness and the sickening glee. And I see the thing drop in slow motion, feeling the sound of it in my stomach when it makes contact with chin and pushes through it, the awful crunch of jawbones snapping under the weight. Gutierrez screams a sputtering scream as I smash into the smiling black bastard on top of him and send him half upright and tripping over the curb to fall on his face in the grass. I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I did put all my weight into it. What I do beyond that, I don't have to know because CHP's behind me with guns drawn and they pop off a warning shot that sends the kid scrambling away like a greyhound. As he goes, I see a shiny scar gleam on his shoulder, like he had surgery or something. Shoot him, I say. He got goots, shoot him! But they don't. They let him get away, over a fence. That burns me up, but I can't waste energy on it now. I look down and assess the injury before me. It's bad. Ugly bad. Caps beside me. He sees it. Suzuki does, too. Shit, Suzuki says. Hang in, Goots. Through a new rip in his face, I see Gutierrez's tongue flailing like it's trying to get up and run away. The rest is worse, because I also see his jaw just hanging off, completely out of its left socket, so far out that I can see the flat whites of his molars. My heart drops when I see that. I'm out of my jacket and ripping my uniform shirt off because nothing in the first aid box seems big enough for this, balling it up as best I can before putting it between his shoulder and his jaw, and I'm turning his cheek into it so it'll keep his jaw in one place for the moment. Keep the pressure there if you can, I say to Suzuki. Just for a sec. Cap runs to the radio as we lift Gutierrez and throw his arms over our shoulders to drag him to the cab. We don't have time for C-spine. Best we can do is have Suzuki's hands on his neck, supporting it while we get the fuck out of here. I'm breathing thick and fast, and I'm babbling, apologizing with every word I can manage. 
I'm telling Goots how fucking sorry I am. Sorry that CHP dumbass didn't grease that kid right there. Sorry I didn't trust my gut and leave the two and a half behind. That if we hadn't left my three and a half on the last run, I would have told him to leave it where it was on the grass, to not load it, but I didn't want to be without my last supply hose for the next one, and how stupid that all sounds now. How none of it was worth it. None of it. Suzuki and I get Gutierrez into the shotgun seat of my rig. We lean him against the seat back as gingerly as we can, before I'm jumping down and running around the front to my door. Suzuki does the same, scrambling into his jump seat behind and opening the window partition wider so he can support Gutierrez's neck. Cap's in the back now, too, and he's strung the radio cord through. To the mic, he says, Firefighter Gutierrez has been injured. Say again, the STL's staff assistant says. I'm shouting before I realize I'm shouting. Some gangbanger hit Gutierrez in the face with a brick. Cap ignores me and repeats what he said before. CHP has the crowd all run off now. The four of them comb lawns and sidewalks looking for strays, but I don't have time for that. I throw it in gear. How serious? It's the STL now. He wants to know. I'm front engine now, and I should wait for a CHP cruiser to get in front of me, but I don't. I'm holding what's left of Gutierrez's jaw in its socket with my right hand because he's managed to twist away from the shirt while Suzuki keeps his neck supported, and I'm flipping my lights and sirens with my left as I put my foot down on the accelerator and speed out of the cul-de-sac. Extremely serious, Cap says. What he doesn't say is that Goots has got a new hole in his face, some teeth turned around, and I can't go into the rest. Gutierrez is 57S, one of ours, and the worst cook you could ever imagine. And he's shaking as I try to hold his face together, shivering more like. It's shock. He's murmuring something about me needing to call his wife and tell her he's okay, telling me not to worry, telling me it's his fault for getting his leg stuck. Through the hole in his face, I feel the side of his tongue shuddering against my palm as he speaks. Stop talking, I say to him. Just stop. Harbor, UCLA, the STL finally says. All over the city. Engine convoys have been reporting civilians trying to slow them down or stop them so they can pelt rigs with bottles, rocks, cans, anything. They string themselves across intersections by holding hands, Red Rover style, banking on you slowing down. When Gutierrez whimpers, I feel a vibration in my wrist bone. Right then, I take a breath as deep as I can manage. So you know, Captain. I say behind me to Wiltz. If anybody gets in my way, I'm running them right the fuck over. There's no response right away. Only the directional wails of the sirens coming on behind me as the engines fall in. They're with me. All of them. You do what you got to do, Cap says. Two. Nobody gets in my way, lucky for them. I'm happy about that, as happy as I can be under the circumstances, because I really don't need anything else on my conscience. 
Right now, Suzuki's still supporting Gutierrez's neck, but Gutz is moaning a little between breaths. I've managed to press his shirt so his jaw stays marginally in the socket. That freed up my right hand to drive, but it also made the steering wheel sticky with blood, and the feel of it makes me hate myself. That feeling multiplies when I hear Cap relating details of the injury over the radio to the STL. Vermont's the first major street I come to, so I bang a left, but I'm going a little too fast, and my right rear tire kicks up as I turn, and it lands with a screechy thump that shakes the whole rig. Suzuki grunts, and Gutierrez doesn't react, but all the same, I resolve never to do that again. Slow down. We're in a hurry. That's what I tell myself. I actually say it out loud. It's something my ex used to say to me. It was the one good thing she ever left me with. Something to remind me to stay calm during storms. You're doing just fine, Cap says behind me. We roll by some National Guards building a sandbag fort on a street corner, on the edge of a supermarket parking lot, and I can't help thinking they'd do more good where we just were, but hell. I know a big part of their job is deterrent, not engagement. Still, it would have been nice to protect someone's neighborhood from burning to the ground without getting attacked by its residents, the very same people we're trying to help. That'd be too much to ask, though, right? Fucking animals. The CHP cruiser pushes up alongside me now. My guess is he's thinking this is my city, and I know where the hell I'm going, which is good, because I do. It's also his way of letting me know he's following my lead, and the good news is, the streets are clear enough to allow that, which surprises me because I thought for sure curfew wouldn't work, not with how this city's going up. I take a left on gauge, but this time I'm going slow enough that my rig stays flat. I'm up the on-ramp and on the harbor freeway in a big goddamn hurry. My exit's Carson, and I'm going over 60 now, but not much over. It's not advisable to push it much past that when you're carrying almost a full 500-gallon water tank and a 50-gallon fuel tank, no matter how full it is. We'll be there in five minutes. We'll pull up, and everything will be fine. They'll swarm over like wasps wearing scrubs, take him away, and fix him. Slow down, I think. You're in a hurry. That doesn't make me actually slow down, but it helps me stay atop my feelings. I want to hurt the kid who did this. I want to find him, the one with the shoulder scar, and put a bullet in both his kneecaps. I try to remember what the gangbanger looked like, but I'm eyeing Gutierrez every few seconds to make sure he keeps the pressure on. I can't imagine how much it must hurt to put any amount of weight there. He's one tough son of a bitch. I'm going to tell everyone that when he heals up. Everyone. Someday, this is just going to be a story, I think. A war story. And it might not have been as bad if our EMT trainee wasn't out with 46S instead. I could have used the help. SEAL medics have done their unofficial internships with us for years because the Navy believes it to be the most effective way to learn about combat injuries. Blunt force gunshot and stab wounds, explosion trauma. There's more of that in L.A. than anywhere else in America, I guess. It's our own private war zone.
and this one just claimed the wrong damn casualty. Right now, blood loss is getting to Gutierrez. He closes his eyes intermittently, like slow windshield wipers. I don't know if he can hear me, but I talk to him anyway. Hell of a way to end your shift, hero! I say it loud enough so he can hear me over the siren. You'll sure have some stories to tell when you get back to Hawaii. My cheeks flare up just from saying it, and I feel about a foot tall then. Because what's heroic about trying to do your job and getting jumped by a gangbanger the size of a refrigerator? What could possibly be heroic about trying to protect yourself and failing? Nothing, that's what. I shake my head and check his pulse. It's slow, but there. We'll be there in three minutes, I think. The freeway's mostly empty. There's nothing to do but stare at new red, blue, or black graffiti that says, fuck the police, and fuck the National Guard, and kill Whitey, and try not to take it personal while I aim the engine straight and go fast. We pass two LAPD cruisers with their lights on going back the other direction, but that's it. I've never seen anything like it. Gutierrez is one of our commuters. During your probationary period, you have to live inside the city limits, but after that, you can move wherever you want. If you can work shift trades and it's okay with your captain, you can work whatever schedule fits your needs. The lone thing to worry about is company morale, because people being far away all the time can affect continuity and teamwork. But as I said, that's up to Captain Wiltz. He's one of the good ones. We have firemen living in San Francisco, San Diego, and Vegas that I know of. But the farthest flung is Gutierrez. He lives on Maui, a little house in Napili with his wife and second grader, and he flies in for his shifts. God damn. You know how sometimes in the heat of the moment you forget things, and later you remember them, and it makes everything worse? That's what it feels like to remember Gutierrez's wife and kid. Keholani and Junior, their names are. Well, Junior's just a nickname. He's got his daddy's name. He's next in line. Cute kid, too. Wide, brown eyes like his mother. Earlier this year, I met them before they did a Disneyland trip. The kids first. In the station house, Junior asked me if I wanted to see what he was planning to give the Tooth Fairy, and when I said yes, he pointed inside his mouth and showed me where a tiny white tooth was loose. He flicked it back and forth like a light switch, just for me. After that, he giggled and asked me if I thought Mickey might want to see it too. I checked Junior's daddy's pulse again. It's the same. You better be okay, I say to him. I'm royally pissed at that jury right now. I'm pissed at everything, but I might as well be pissed at them specifically. They come back with even one guilty. This doesn't happen. The least they could have given us was a scapegoat, but no. The whole city's paying for it now, and Goots is paying more than his share. Junior's dad works trades, so he's on one month and off one month. April, he was on so May he's scheduled off. If this riot doesn't happen, if the city doesn't blow up, 
He doesn't stay out on emergency duty, and he's sleeping at the station house, and then catching a flight first thing. I know because I've driven him to LAX a bunch of times. Every firefighter has a second job, comes with a territory of so many off days. On his off months, Gutierrez does real estate. From what I understand, he does pretty well at it. The part that messes with me the most is that technically, he should have been off duty when he got cinder blocked. God damn. That one gets to me, that thought. It spirals into guilt, and I let it. I'm the king of beating myself up. Nobody else is better, except perhaps my mother with the way she self-inflicts. As Croatian Catholics, it's practically our birthright. This particular one starts up like a stabbing pain in my stomach. It ripples out hot from the middle of me to my fingers and toes and back. It's telling me this is all my fault, how we shouldn't have even executed a quick pickup, how I should have trusted my gut, because if I had, Gutierrez would be okay. He'd have gotten home to his family in one piece. Not now, though. Not now. 3. The STL radioed ahead for them to meet us at the entrance to the ER, so when I pull up, there's already four white coats out there rolling a gurney. I slide over and hold my shirt tighter to his face as they open the passenger side door real slow, and six pairs of hands come through the opening and cushion him before they open it all the way and lower him down. We got him, they say to me. I don't want to let go, but they say it again. So I have to let go. For a second, I just sit there and watch them settle him on the cot and put a sea collar on him before trying to put an oxygen mask over his mouth and realizing that isn't as easy an undertaking as maybe they thought it'd be. When they get him going and pass through the doors, it feels like a small part of me gets ripped away as he goes. I grab my heavy jacket out of the cab because it doesn't seem appropriate for me to walk around in my sweaty, bloody undershirt and I'm already through the doors by the time it seems ridiculous to me to wear my coat indoors, but it's too late. It's on. Before I can blink, Captain Wiltz is next to me. They'll take good care of him, he says. There's nothing we can do now. Listen, the STL wants us back in service, so 79s are sending us a firefighter. They're running him down here in the plug buggy. We can't run an engine with just three people so they're replacing Gutierrez so we can keep going. I know that's how it works, but it still hurts. I need the pisser, I say, and excuse myself. Sure, Cap says. His voice is worn out. It sounds about how I feel right now. In the washroom, I scrub my hands twice. I wash them too hot and only use the mirror to make sure I don't have any blood on me but I do. There's a sticky, dry drop matted in the hair of my left eyebrow like old red honey, a few more flecks over my ear, and even one inside it. How they got there, I'll never know. I scrub them all. After I've used about twelve paper towels to dry my hands, I button my coat up all the way so if I see her, she can't see the blood on my undershirt. The ICU's not far away. I know where it is and how to get there. 
I figure I've got about ten minutes before the new guy gets here, and I need to see her, to see just one good thing today. It's not that it would make everything better, but maybe it would keep me from sinking. I don't know. That sounds stupid. But maybe it's true. I pass a bald Asian janitor, pushing a mop with his Walkman up too loud and trebly. I recognize the song, To Be With You. And I shake my head because it's way too cheesy, and I'm actually a little embarrassed, because when I heard it last week on the radio, I thought about Gloria and had to stop myself getting used to the idea because maybe she doesn't feel the same. When I turn the corner and see her standing right in front of her station, I get a hitch in my step and then have to act like it's natural. There's something different about this woman. It's hard to explain, but the way she walks, the way she carries herself, you can tell she loves her job and she's steady, someone you can count on. I like that. She's different from the girls I grew up with, none of them interested in college, all of them now married for years. The ones that seem to be left for dating are either working a longshoreman gig or they're driftwood Pedro girls ten years younger than me, the ones who grew up wanting nothing more out of life after high school than to hostess at the grinder until they land a guy with an ILWU card so they can quit, sit at home, have kids, watch soap operas, and take two vacations a year on Catalina Island. Slav Hawaii, as my mother calls it. It's the Hawaii thought that ambushes me. And once again, I'm thinking about Gutierrez and what happened and how I could have prevented it. I swallow it down. I think about finding the gangbanger who did it, surprising him, making him pay. I try to bury that inside me, too, because right now, Nurse Gloria's talking to the tall blonde nurse. What's her name? I forget. But she's like a fast-forward button on the VCR, that girl. Second time I ever met her, she asked me out. And it's not that I wasn't flattered or that she wasn't attractive, but it put me off a bit. I guess I'm a little more traditional. I like to do the asking. It's how I was raised. Anyway... The blonde one sees me coming and does some kind of secret code nod to Nurse Gloria, who turns to look at me and... Sometimes the way she looks at me, I can't tell if she thinks I'm just right or not enough. It's this in-between kind of look I can't place. I try to muster up a smile or something, but I can't stop thinking about how sticky the steering wheel felt in my hands. Good morning, Nurse Gloria. I say, and it comes out quieter than I want. Maybe it's stupid, using her title like that when I greet her, but I can't help it. In my line, everybody goes by last names, and I guess it's somewhat true here, too, because I've only ever seen last names on people's name tags. So the one time I happen to meet her and look at her tag and call her Nurse Rubio, she immediately tells me to call her Gloria, and before I can think, I blurt out, Nurse Gloria, and she laughs and calls me Fireman Anthony, and that was that. Good morning, Fireman Anthony, she says. It feels good to hear her say that, familiar. Since she doesn't smile, I don't smile either. Now, she doesn't look unhappy to see me, but she doesn't look happy either. I can tell something's going on behind those eyes, though, and I don't know what it is, 
but I want to find out. She's got a poker face so good that sometimes I wonder where she grew up, and if it was rough there, because I get the feeling that she could turn her toughness on and off like a tap. I look at my hands, and I see I didn't get all the blood off around my fingernails, so I dig them into my pockets as she says, From what's coming in, it doesn't look good out there. What's going on? She touches my arm with the tips of her fingers and drops her hand fast. It's so slight that I figure it could have been a mistake, but I hope it wasn't. For this moment, I want to try to tell her what happened with the cul-de-sac and Gutierrez as succinctly as I can, but no sentences come out, no actual words even, so all I end up saying is, Ugh. It's like I'm stuck in neutral somehow. And the worst part is, I'm trying to get to drive, trying to shift down, but my brain just won't go. What a dumbass. She's probably thinking exactly the same thing, because she's looking at me now. Not sizing me up exactly, but like she's looking for what's wrong with me, and she's not quite sure what it is. It's almost like she's diagnosing me. We pass an awkward moment that way. Me looking at her white nurse's shoes and how they're only scuffed on the insides, like maybe she rubs them together without really thinking about it. And I'm not saying anything, and she isn't either. She's just looking at me, and that's when I know I need to break the silence somehow, to say anything right now. You be sure to take care of him, I finally say. I half wince as soon as it's out of my mouth. Idiot! That makes no sense because I didn't tell her about Gutierrez at all, or where he is, and that reminds me that I've already stayed too long. But I can't get words together for how good it's been just to see her, so I don't say anything. Everybody's waiting on me. I've got to go, I think. You have to go, she says, like she's reading my thoughts. That settles it. I will never play cards against this woman ever but I admit that the thought of having her on my team is a different story. I must tilt my head as I think that, because she gives me a little smile that takes away any comeback I could possibly come up with. Be safe out there, she says. The tone is so polite, but it's almost like an order. A polite order, that I don't know what to say, so I kind of nod automatically and go. I'm so frustrated and embarrassed with how our exchange went that I don't even look back. I just pull my hands out of my pockets and look at my nails again, how there's still blood underneath my index and ring. And I think about Gutierrez again, and Junior, and the phone call he and his mommy will be getting real soon to tell them what's going on, and I walk faster. 4. I compartmentalize. I admit it. I put everything that just happened in a box inside me and try not to open it. Sirens are off as we head back out, and I'm not out front this time. The STL's vehicle is back up where it belongs, which is good, because I'm not exactly at 100% just now. I'm in the middle of the pack, cushioned in front and back. We've got a new guy in place of Goots, McPherson, and we're heading back north, just a little column of lights as we go up the freeway. The STL's already calling out an address on the radio, the newest winner of our little portion of the LAFD lottery, but I'm not really paying attention. 
I'm trying awfully hard not to pick at the box full of thoughts about Gutierrez and his family, or how badly it went with Nurse Gloria, or what I would do to that gangbanger's face with a hammer. So I just stay in formation. I try to distract myself. I wonder how many structures are going to burn to the ground because there aren't enough engines to go around. You know what's hilarious, though? What the news thinks of all this burning. The guys on television go on and on about how they can't believe people are torching their own neighborhoods. They think it's sad, some kind of thoughtless, primal rage thing. It's not. It's mostly planned, and it's one of three things, grudge, mayhem, or insurance. By the way, this isn't an official definition or anything. It's just what I think. It's grudge if one guy doesn't like the other guy for whatever reason, so he takes advantage of the chaos to do something about it. So even the race stuff, like what the blacks are doing to the Koreans, goes here. It's mayhem if you're deliberately setting it for the heck of it, or if you're trying to cover a crime, or using it as a distraction to draw emergency assistance elsewhere so you can commit a crime somewhere else, which the gangs definitely do. They did it before the riots, they're doing it during, and they'll do it after. In fact, I can tell you right now that I really don't look forward to this summer. All this shit going down now is going to require retribution, if not in the next few days, then later, into the summer even. The last, and likeliest, it's insurance. If you've got a business in a rundown part of the city, and it's not making as much money as you want, but you do have fire insurance, and you've been paying hefty premiums on that policy for damn near too long, and then one day the racist cops get acquitted, and all of a sudden up pops the opportunity to torch your own premises and get away with it, all you have to do is blame gangs or looters, so why not? When I first heard the verdict, I was sitting next to Charlie Carrillo on the bleachers at Peck Park in Pedro. Carrillo's 53S, but we went to high school together, and now we play on a local baseball team. I'm a catcher. It's the most important position on the field, so far as I'm concerned. You could play a pickup game without a shortstop if you really, really had to. You know, eight on eight. But without a catcher? No chance. The catcher is the constant. He calls every pitch, and he's there through every pitching change. Without him, there is no game. Anyway, we'd just finished practice, and we had a little radio between us that was going. So I was sitting next to Carrillo as the newscaster reads out the particulars about the jury acquitting Brezano, Wind, and Kuhn. <laughs> Which reminds me, what kind of unfortunate name is that for a cop in a race case anyway? There's also mention of failure to reach a verdict on Powell, but something else bugs me. As I'm unbuckling my leg pads, I turn to Carrillo and say, How come the news makes such a big deal about all the white cops? Brezano isn't white, is he? I'm pretty sure it's Brezeño, Carrillo says, which is Hispanic. Carrillo's Hispanic too, so he would know. It's not exactly fair saying he's white if he isn't, I say. It suits a story, I guess. White versus black? Yeah, I say, but it's shading the facts. Big deal, Carrillo says. They do it all the time. No accountability in that line of work. You know that. The day someone on TV has to write an incident report on a fuck-up and admit responsibility for it like we do, 
That's the day no one wants to be a newscaster anymore. True, I say, but I'm not sure it matters now. All hell's going to break loose. I called in right after that and asked if they needed me at the station, but I got told that since I was scheduled for the next day, I should just come in then. So I did, after all hell really had broken loose, more than anybody thought. Of course, I didn't know then that our esteemed black mayor, Mr. Tom Bradley, was going to go on television and say it was time to take it to the streets, or something to that effect. The guys at the station wouldn't shut up about that. They couldn't believe it. They felt betrayed, like he threw us under the bus when he said that, put us at greater risk, and I get that. I feel betrayed too, but I'm a realist. It would have exploded regardless. Do you really think people were sitting at home, waiting to see what the mayor said before they decided to riot? Me neither. Crips were out and around Florence and Normandy before Bradley even went on television. I'm looking at the aftermath spread out before me as I try to prepare myself to get back in the thick of it. From my seat, it looks like Los Angeles has been air-raided. It looks like bombs went off. Pockets of orange blaze on either side of the 110, some in pits of black here and there, because the fire knocked out the electricity on the block. And not for the first time, I think this is what hell must look like. There are no stars tonight, and there haven't been any for two nights straight. The canopy of black smoke hanging in the basin is too thick to see through. I status check and inform Cap that I'm under a quarter tank of fuel, and if I am, the unspoken truth goes. Everybody else is, too. Cap relays this. It's the crucial time when the strike team leader will either decide to fuel us all the way up wherever we can and maybe stay out another six hours, or head to R&R to do that and take on some new hoses in the meantime. All he says to Cap over the radio is thanks, though, which doesn't help tell me which way he's leaning. This has an implied meaning, too. Shut up and do your job. Thank you for listening to Harper Audio Presents, edited by Sharon Matlin. If you'd like to hear the next excerpt of All Involved, we'll post an excerpt of Day 4 next Tuesday, and you can hear my interview with Ryan and clips from Days 1, 2, and 3 at Harper Audio Presents. This is Ryan Gaddis, the author of All Involved. Thank you so much for listening, but this isn't the whole story. To learn more of these characters, please check out the unabridged versions in print, audio, and ebook formats. Thank you for listening.